In the basic story of Sleeping Beauty, the prince, in honor of the perfect guy, romantic leading man always seemed a little creepy to you. I'm Katie Rich, and the entire premise of, of About Time is that a romance can flourish when a man completely manipulates the space-time continuum to fall in love with a woman without the woman's knowledge. That is completely <laughs> fucked up, you that guys. That is fucked up. That is fucked up. Hey, it's me, David the Seven, Zach Braff, specifically in Garden State, even from the beginning when I just saw the previews, but also in life. He's just fucked up. He's just <laughs> fucked up. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Ethan Embry and Can't Hardly Wait. Because uh, today he just seems kind of like an MRA type. He's oh, like yeah, totally. weeping and pining and he deserves the girl. What the fuck? No, you don't. Good point. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 86 for Tuesday, September 8th, 2015, the year of our time lord, Dr. Emmett Brown. There's just three of us right now. David is on his way back from his uh, Carol-related epiphanies at the Telluride Film Festival, (laughs) which we'll uh, get to hear about at some point. I think it involved a lot of gondola riding. Yes, based on his Instagram, it was both beautiful inside and outside. The movie yeah. theaters. So we'll hear all about that at some point from him. But in the meantime, you know, Dave's here. Dave is BB-8 somewhere near. What? You. What are you doing yeah, right now? Yeah, he's right. Ne- right. What are you right guys talking week? about? We can't talk about. We can't what talk the about hell? That, you're That's lucky. True. Well, I guess you're not lucky, but this has been spoiled for me. I mean, this name, I, I block it. So I I'm don't trying really know to how let you, that fade. I don't really know how you could have avoided that at that point. I do apologize. I totally forgot. I I blocked it. Well, Dave put that name into my my Twitter blocker. So I've been muted to all things Force oh. Friday. It was a wonderful thing. Except, you know, I go to the front page of the New York Times and there's pictures of this thing. And <laughs> I have never, I've never seen it in motion. I actually, a Hulu ad has started to play that involves Star Wars toys. And I heard the music come up in the middle of a show. I ran out of the room. <laughs> wow. It was, really it's, I live a depressing the... life, but I do know of this little thing. I, I, I thought it was BB6 actually, but these, uh, uh, so that these, is a spoiler. These last few months are going to be really tough. I, uh, it's gonna, not going to be good. It's going to yeah. be pretty horrible. I'm going to be running out of more rooms. It's bad. So, but so and everyone who thinks I'm obnoxious already, I mean, people who listen to this show have already complained to me on Twitter to be like, why would you try? Why? Why? What your job is to wa- like watch this stuff, read this stuff. <laughs> do or why do not. Do there is no try, Patches. Bingo. I'm doing it. I, That's I'm not doing a spoiler, it. right? Uh, it depends. Don't even Don't even go there. Even without David here, we do have a new review that we'd like to read, and I think Patches is going to take the honors. I don't know what accent you want to do it in or impression, or if you just want to read it like a normal person. It's, really, all, it's 100 degrees in my house, so I don't think I'm going to do it in any impression. I'm going to be doing it a melting man. I'm going to be doing it as that chocolate melting man from Candyland. Who, Molasses? Oh. The uh, molasses guy? What was his yeah, name? Yeah, hang on. I'll look that Someone up. Someone looked that up while I'm reading this. Okay, so this <laughs> review is from King of Noki, who says, Why does Matt Patches not go by matches and other burning questions? I do want to know, so I'm going to read this. Um, first things first, I'm the neo-realist, they say. Now that that's out of the way, I'd like to let you know how much this podcast means to me. That's very sweet. It got me through commuting to college, my job delivering newspapers between 2 and 6 a.m., and various crises. But most importantly, my exposure to the podcast has guided me and acted as a tool in my growing relationship 
relationship to cinema over the years. So thank you. A few words about each of you. This Here's the dangerous part. This was all beautiful up until this moment. Uh, Patches, you've got crossover appeal, kiddo. A face for Broadway and a voice for regional theater. My God. The next Scott movie, <laughs> Mance, right here. I look forward to seeing you give the next Green Lantern film the vaunted See It seal of potato approval on grocery store checkout lane TVs everywhere very soon. Katie, your super early defense of Chadwick Tatum's potential as an actor cannot and will not be forgotten. His recent success must be gratifying, but perhaps the only true way you could be karmically repaid would be the with a green light for White House down to Flag Day. Indeed. In all seriousness, yes, I would see that movie. I would oh see that movie. Oh my god, yes. In all seriousness, your quarter quell story about going to see Charade in the Rain is my favorite of any quarter quell moment. I highly recommend people listen to that episode. That that was a very sweet story. Does anyone remember the number that that episode was off the top? Of that might have been 100, 75, 100? No, 100 was when we had our families on. I oh, then I would for, say it's 75. I just 75. hijacked this review. I apologize. No, this is good. Uh, let's see. Dave Seven, we cool. But I still haven't gotten over that time you almost blew out my eardrums with a particularly thunderous music break. Halloween episode, if I recall. I get that you've got got to drop those dirty, oh-so-relevant-to-the-discussion beats, but have mercy. Uh, which episode was that, Dave? I saw you going on about it somewhere, maybe in an email thread. Oh, I just know, but I'm almost positive uh, what artist that was, because I have a dubstep Halloween EP that is pretty, pretty intense. <laughs> that, that screams horror to me. Uh, and David, David is not here, but he has read this and appreciates these words. Uh, you're my favorite critic, full stop. But honestly, when I first started listening to Op Kino <clears throat> years ago, I could not stand you. I consider this a testament to how our taste can broaden and change over time. Can someone just look up the definition of Stockholm Syndrome for me real quick? I particularly love your end-of-the-year countdown videos. I find myself watching them throughout the year whenever I'm feeling particularly rudderless. I can't explain why, but they're comforting to me. I guess what I'm really saying is that if you're ever in rural Massachusetts, there's a pull-out couch with your name on it. I'll rue the day when you folks no longer want to invest your time and energy into this podcast, but until then, I'll be there. Will. I guess King of Noki's real name is Will. Will Noki. Will Noki, Will. thank you. That was tremendous. Thank you so much. And, I, have two, uh, I have two updates to follow this up. Yes. Uh, the, the monster in Candyland is named Gloppy the Molasses Monster. <laughs> <laughs> and nice. uh, the uh, story, the uh, quarter quell in which I talked about charade is Operation Kino 75, the storytelling quarter quell, which you can find. That was a beautiful episode. Um, yeah, it's a good episode. This was, yeah, this was an amazing review. Thank you. And now that we've gone down memory lane, nostalgia lane, uh, masturbatory you lane. Do not, you do not have to write anything nearly so long or thoughtful or uh, kind as that to leave us a review. You can leave us any kind of a review. We'll be happy for it. So, But More if you have poetry. a really negative review, maybe, you know. Yeah. Keep that one to yourself. Keep it to yourself. <laughs> it all began with a curse. Uh, this week is Slim Pickens in theaters, but there is a movie I would uh, give a shout out to uh, that if you can see it, I think it's opening kind of Limited release, probably not limited release. It is the release. A few theaters across the country. It's called Good Night, Mommy. Um, Dave, who, is this a German film? I believe it's. I want to say it's German. It's German. Ooh. Oh wait, it actually yes. takes place in Austria. Uh, speak speaks German. Um, it's by Severin Fiala and Veronica Franz. And Dave, you saw this movie at the Stanley Film Festival, I recall. It's got a little bit of a shout out in a few episodes ago. Yeah, I saw it in uh, the Stanley Film Festival. It was one of those movies where um, uh, somebody described it to me as just 
these brothers, their mom comes back after having plastic surgery. And cosmetic surgery. It's not cosmetic their, surgery. Cosmetic surgery. And they're convinced that it's not uh, their mother. Yes. And that's sort of all I knew going into it. And I think that's probably that's basically what the trailer yeah that was released also I, limits it to. i would warn people that what we're going to talk about involves it doesn't involve spoilers but they're you know if you don't if you want to go in completely clean when goodnight mommy comes out in theaters it comes out on the 11th i would s- skip ahead to the next section of the podcast because our mere mentioning of what the film contains may feel spoilerific to you if you are sensitive like I am right now in a very sensitive spoiler space uh, <laughs> if you become that person but so skip ahead if you don't want to hear anything about Goodnight Mommy and for those who've stuck around Goodnight Mommy kind of rides a conceit we won't spoil it here but the whole movie is about one big twist it's a, I think it's about avoiding uh, what what is really going on between these two twin boys and the mother who has, as Dave mentioned, had this cosmetic surgery and is trying to wrangle them. Try, she's a single mother. Uh, the the father's out of the picture. I think he ran off with some hot young thing or something. Am I correct, Dave? I don't remember. But uh, yeah, yeah something possible. Like that. So she's There's trying to maintain like a bitterness from the mother. Yeah, and these boys are bad. I mean, boys will be boys bad, but then things get. The mom is very mean to them, and they're very mean to her. They have a very strange dynamic. Again, it's all about trust. And there's a huge twist uh, about what that dynamic really means. And for me, I and this is going to sound kind of snobby, I guess, but I, I caught wind of it really early. I think it's kind of obvious. And Dave is going to make a case for maybe the film does know that. I don't think it does. I think the enjoyment of the film is about getting to that reveal, which it does. Uh, and I don't see a self-awareness there. And it kind of... it. it, it the whole movie is about navigating around this big twist. So first, I want to get Dave's thoughts about that, and then so that Katie can join in because she has not seen Goodnight Mommy yet. I never will. I'm not brave enough. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, it is very creepy and it's very skillfully directed. Uh, some nightmarish imagery. Very, it can be very gory at times. Um, but I, I do want to talk about films that kind of ride their twists in that way. Other examples, and if if films that. I think there's a difference between a big twist at the end, a fun twist, and a movie that rides its twist. And if you can still enjoy it, if you catch wind of it early. Not to say that I'm smart for getting Goodnight, you know, figuring out Goodnight Mommy early. It just seems to have played its cards uh, a little sloppily, and I, I got it. But Dave, you think it does it on purpose? Well, I mean, I, that was what I ultimately ended up thinking about after I saw the movie. Because the movie has... Um, a tension within it that works regardless if you uh, figure out or know the twist that's coming. And there's a sequence early on that sort of hints in that direction. And then if you pay attention to like, you know, basic color theory uh, with certain characters and situations, uh, it sort of continues hinting at it. And so much like, you know, the sixth sense is a movie that's structured around a plot reveal in a way that, you know, it becomes super obvious once you know what it is and you go back looking for it. I think that this movie, uh, it has a twist and is ultimately about the dynamic that arises because of this thing. But uh, the actual movie rides on a tension that it has nothing to do with the actual plot twist, I don't think, in, in order to enjoy it as a horror movie. So it made me wonder if the filmmakers like put this in there and then you're supposed to know uh 
that to a certain extent you aren't with a reliable narrator. Yeah, I think I think that's my problem with Goodnight Mommy. It's again very scary, very creepy. You know, this classic Euro steady camera. Yeah, you know, is every place in Europe so beautiful? Like every house is on a lake in the middle of nowhere. It all just looks so amazing. <laughs> I want to move to Europe, anywhere in Europe, Austria, I guess. But, um, you know, yeah, it's that classic, it's very much following the architecture of this building, this haunting space, and that itself is very creepy. I do think, you know, the sixth sense does come up here. When you when you find out that uh, Bruce Willis is dead, oh shit, I'm sorry, spoiler, spoiler. Um, Bruce spoiler Willis is dead the whole time, time I, I hadn't been thinking about that twist throughout the first time I saw The Sixth Sense, which I saw with my grandmother, and it was awesome. Uh, but, I, but I had not caught wind of the, the twist that was coming in Sixth Sense, and maybe that was my own immaturity for, for watching these types of films. But yeah, it hadn't dawned on me, but it did restructure the whole film. And when I watched it again, I, now that I have that in mind, I and enjoy it in different ways. But that first pure way, you know, it was about Cole, and it was about the boy, um, but not about dodging something there didn't seem like there was a twist coming on and goodnight mommy mm. seems like the twist is coming on well you know it is because it's it's glaring how obvious what's what's going to happen here is it uh, is it glary is it only obvious to you because you figured out the twist or is it obvious from the way that the film is structured that there is some kind of twist coming well it has to dance around its eventual twist so the dynamics the relationships between the two boy and the mother you know it just has to it has to make sure that there aren't holes in the narrative so that the twist can So is it is fly. it withholding information from you deliberately? Yes. That's okay. that's the thing. So why why does Sixth Sense work so well? Like think about that movie. Does it it must dance around the twist in the same way? But why why aren't we thinking about it or were you? I mean maybe I'm maybe I'm crazy here. Maybe this was an obvious twist for a lot of people. It didn't seem that way when it came out. I knew Well I mean the, uh... Go ahead. Go ahead oh, I knew the twist of the sixth sense ahead of time because I don't know. I think I saw it later than a lot of people. And you have horrible friends. That's no. Bizarre. I like read it in Entertainment Weekly. Like I really waited a long time to see it. I think anyway. I think that's what happened. Um, and it didn't. I mean, it's got really creepy stuff going on in it. It's got really good emotional stuff. In it. I mean, there's a reason that movie. Like I think it got, was it a Best Picture nominee or at least close to it. This is very relevant to our segment three. Um, there's a reason that movie took off the way it did. It's got a lot of other elements to it. And I was actually thinking of a more recent example of something that's really relying on the twist, which is Gone Girl, which is some, a book that everybody read. And a lot of people said, you don't like, don't find out the twist. Like, you got to read this book before you know the twist. And then a movie was made out of it. And a lot of people already knew the twist because they'd already read the book. And that movie and the book both work without the twist because there's so much else going on. And there's so much complexity on a character level. Although on, like, the a nice satisfying thing... individual scene level. Like, that's yeah. the way that you pull it off. You, like, have you have the experience be worth watching either by getting suspense out of a scene in which, you know, even if you know the overall thrust of the story, you don't know how the scene is going to play out or just the satisfaction of being like, oh my God, how are they going to get to this point? And I think Gone Girl holds up in that way. And when you experience it a second time, it's a movie. And I think The Sixth Sense does too, though it's been forever since I saw that. Well, I think the difference between Gone Girl and then something like Usual Suspects versus The Sixth Sense and Goodnight Mommy is that they're, the characters in Gone Girl are, are operating under the secret right? Everything is supposed to look perfect and normal like a regular thriller would up mm -hmm. until the point of the twist. So you don't have to dance around anything. Uh, and same with Usual well, but Suspects. The book is, you just I mean, assume that everything is as it's supposed to be. And it can be that from a genre standpoint. 
Yeah, I mean, the book Gone Girl is withholding a huge bit of information from you. And the movie is doing basically the same thing, and it kind of hinges at a certain point and twists it all around on you. But it doesn't wait till but, the end. I don't know if it. Would but it's not holding. It's not holding it back. It's supposed to look like she's been murdered or kidnapped. So it does, of course. But then the twist. Yeah, the twist comes because it's not as it seems. But it's not like the Sixth Sense, where I mean, actually, I guess maybe 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 I'm maybe I'm full of shit here. <laughs> Dave, sorry, I cut you <laughs> off earlier. Oh no, I just it's it's interesting to me because it's like the sixth sense works I mean as a story like as a ghost story and then I feel like Goodnight Mommy works as um, eventually just like a story between about like parents and trust and then like the audience being able to trust what they're seeing. And I think, like, the dance between that tension, whether or not you figure out what the twist is, like, the slow realization that there is going to be a twist and that it might be the one that they feigned at sort of early on in the film is, I think, part of the tension of this horror movie as much as the actual acts that are working out on screen. Right. So, I'm not like, I'm not sure... And see, the other thing is that if this was, like, I feel like if it, this was an American movie made by an American director, I'd be able to, like, culturally suss out the intention of the director. But, like, here it's, like, I don't know. It's, like, everything in the early part of the film is so weird. And I'm, like, unsure if it's just, like, culturally weird or just, like, that like, like amped up That's uh, horror way that's supposed to tell you something's wrong. It has an advantage for not being embedded in American culture. It's unfamiliar that's already. Advantage for, yeah. That's interesting. Well, that's some, I, um, I don't know if it's really true, but Old Boy, a movie with a very famous twist, has that working in its favor because it's not American. And so it's there's so much weirdness going on in that already. And then it somehow still manages to take you by surprise at the very true. end. I, I feel like, just to wrap up here, Goodnight Mommy for me is more like The Village than it is Sixth Sense. Whereas The Village, we were so far... We just knew Shyamalan was going to come up with something. There was going to be a twist, and this yeah. strange scenario already rings of like, well, there's got to be a deep, a deeper meaning or a deeper plot thicken that will thicken eventually. And that's kind of how Goodnight Mommy is. It's so stylistic. You know, I, I wish I had felt the way Dave did. I mean, it's so intriguing and it's so weird that you want to keep watching. It's it's an enjoyable experience as far as like watching people bleed out their mouths can possibly be. Spoiler. Um, but oh god, that scene. <laughs> that scene is gross. That scene is gross. But I didn't feel fulfilled by the narrative twists and turns because you just you just know something's coming uh, and this all ties back really because M Night Shyamalan has a movie coming out this week too called The Visit, Damn, and we did right. not see it. Uh, and they're not showing it to critics until everyone's out of town for Toronto, which is where Katie and I will be shortly. But yeah. uh, So we so will not see only it. So Dave, it's up to you to see it. Yeah. We'll, uh, yeah. You'll have to let us know. But I'm also, if you're listening and you go see The Visit, I want to know if there's a twist. Uh, but maybe you shouldn't tell me on Twitter or something, because then everyone will be spoiled. la 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 Are either of you sons of anarchy people? 
No. Nope. Never watched the second. Neither am I. I'm sure listeners out there, our our comrade Joanna Robinson loves Sons of Anarchy, I believe. I don't think I'm making that up, but she can take us to task if so. Or if listeners watch Sons of Anarchy, please make the Twitter case for why we should go back and watch all like 8,000 seasons of it, uh, which people know I'm not too keen on. But... Kurt Sutter, who created Sons of Anarchy, has a new show coming to FX, and this time I was ready to get on board from the very beginning, because it sounded very cool. It's the Bastard Executioner, and it is set in early 14th century. It follows uh, a knight in King Edward I's army, Um, so this is uh, some medieval shit going down here. where does King Edward fall in the... Is he like King Arthur era, or...? Uh, he's the King of England from, I think, until 1307, the Edward Longshanks. Not far from King Arthur then, right? It definitely looks like a King Arthur type situation. I would not, uh, I'm, gonna look up I, I'm my not an expert. <laughs> while, while you do this. I got a lot of Wikipedia. The period of Longshanks is not. Oh no, King Arthur was like the late 5th century. God, I don't know anything. They're a little Continue. more sophisticated now. Continue. They seem like it based on the pilot to the Bastard Executioner, which doesn't deal in kind of like faux Shakespearean or something like that. It's it's very plain talk, easy to digest, medieval speak. Um, but yeah, this follows this this so this knight who is going to basically inhabit the position of executioner to seek revenge. It's a dense revenge tale that is filling a gap in my Game of Thrones watching right (laughs) now. Um, And he, in the beginning, oh man, so the reason to watch his show is that it's so freaking bloody, it's so full of action, and just like gobbledygook, medieval gobbledygook. Uh, I thought of my uncle, I remember my uncle, when I was a kid, I just kind of looked up to him because he loved medieval history, but in a kind of uh, History Channel. He loved the swords and he loved the battles. Like so, you know, people who become obsessed with old battles and researching that. And I think people really into the history would enjoy Bastard Executioner. On you know, it's it's character driven, of course. Is it really but accurate are, to the history, despite all the modern stuff going on? I don't. I mean, it seems steeped in history. Again, this is like History Channel level history. I think people who have read every book about uh, the the long shanks will dispute facts here uh, to the end. Uh, and apparently the pl- plot, I've only seen the first two episodes, which debut uh, on the 15th of this month. We won't get to talk about it because I think we're going to spend most of our time talking about Toronto next week, which is why I wanted to bring it up. But uh, apparently the plot deals with the fallout of Madog Ap Lewin, uh, the Welsh Rebellion. Wow. <laughs> like, okay, sure it does. But... Yeah, the history is not why I'm really kind of jazzed about the show. The characters are really gruff and mean, and it's grimy, but it's, you know, I have seen um, medieval films that are all about the grime. I think of, um, oh, I think it's called The Black Plague. There's an Eddie Redmayne movie. Uh, oh, Black Death from 2010 uh, with Sean Bean and <laughs> Eddie Redmayne. That movie is just about how gross it is in 14th century England, how muddy it is, and how everyone's afraid of like witchcraft and, and plague, and it's just disgusting. And Black Death is a really entertaining film because it's kind of, it is a horror film 
taking place in this disgusting era. Um, and Bastard Executioner is... It's more like what I imagine Sons of Anarchy is. I've seen maybe one or two episodes of Sons of Anarchy, and it's just about these power dynamics uh, in the group. I'm, now I'm speaking of Bastard Executioner. Uh, just who, what are these knights going to do? How are they going to take revenge? Who are these political people they're going after? Um, Stephen Moyer from True Blood plays one of these... You know, he's working for the king and he's pulling all the strings. Uh, Kurt Sutter actually plays this disgusting character called the Dark Mute. Katie Siegel, his wife, who was also in Sons of Anarchy, plays a kind of witchy woman who's helping this main knight on his quest to seek revenge. And, you know, he's infiltrating the forces as an executioner. It's these first two hours are really dense and kind of meandering and you, you now the plot is thickening i don't really know where the show is going but i highly recommend it because it's it's just a lot of fun with disgusting medieval battling and and weird politics i don't know so if you need it, your it feels, game of thrones it feels that game of thrones game. Bad, yeah it really yeah <laughs> exactly exactly so that that is my lose pitch for bastard executioner i have no idea where it's going i don't know if it'll live past its 10 episodes but it seems very kurt sutter in terms of like instead of gruff motorcycle guys it's gruff knights in armor shining armor or grimy armor um and it premieres next week I was seven years old It'd be really fun to watch a boy grow up Is what I was told It's just too bad They forgot one thing that every movie needs They forgot a story Alright, so we're, as I mentioned Katie, you and I are going to Toronto Next week, we're gonna meet David there, who was just at Telluride. We're all going to experience the New York Film Festival. Dave is going to laugh at us for caring too much about all these stupid fall dramas. Uh, you guys just need to tell me what I actually need to see, yeah. and then I get to figure out where that's showing near me. Yeah. That's that's my trouble. That's, these like big movies good, show uh, everywhere. Pretty good deal. You'll see yeah, them. Be, well, and you'll, see Carol, I, you'll, you'll even see Carol someday. <laughs> oh, you'll definitely see Carol, or you'll die trying. <laughs> um, and you'll you'll definitely see them because they're going to be part of the awards conversation. Yes, it is time once again. It begins in September. It ends in February. It is the awards brouhaha. But to kind of prepare ourselves, bracing ourselves for kind of how silly it is, how extreme it can be, how uh, it's just a cacophony of talk for several months, I want to ease us in. So people who don't like the award season, I think you'll enjoy this conversation, I hope, because I pitched it to you guys. I wanted to talk about best picture winners of the past like 10, 15 years uh, or, or dating back even further about how relevant these best picture winners have been or will continue to be in terms of just being great films or not necessarily that, even just being zeitgeisty choices, which is what I think the Oscars do. It doesn't have to be the best film of the year, quote-unquote. It has to be a film that embodies where we are and, like, why would we pick this one now? And that's that's important, too. So do they have to live on as critically acclaimed films? Maybe not. They can live on as something emblematic of that time. But are uh, have the films that have won, will they do that? And uh, I, I put on you, and Katie, we should turn to you first, because when we started the, our pre-podcast discussion here, I was talking about how maybe, maybe the first Miramax Best Picture winner, The English Patient, back in 1996, was a turning point 
for why Best Picture winners have lost a little of their luster um, when when the Oscars became a game to win and Harvey Weinstein muscled his way in and wanted to stake claim in the winner's circle. Uh, they became less about picking something zeitgeisty or a great film and became an industry competition. Do you um, agree there? What, was an English patient a turning point or, or later Shakespeare in love, perhaps? Let's be clear that the Oscars have always been a contest and something to be won within an industry. They're always a popularity contest. They always have been. They always will be. Harvey Weinstein did not invent that. Harvey Weinstein started spending a ton of money to make that happen and to see, you know, to basically buy Gwyneth Paltrow an Oscar. But you can't do that from nothing. You can't just come in and say, hey, my movie is going to be your best picture winner no matter how good it is. It has to have something going for it. So even when you've got The Artist, which seemingly has nothing to do with anything, and I think what, three years later, now has even less to do with anything. That movie had to get beloved. It had to win the Audience Award at Toronto. And that's why I think all Oscar movies, regardless of whether or not they stand the test of time or if you look back at the history of that year, seem to have nothing to do with what was going on in the world. All of them tell a story about what was happening. You can't know why Ben Aff- why Argo won Best Picture without knowing about Ben Affleck's director's snub and how it premiered at Toronto and the controversy going on around it and how Zero Dark Thirty didn't win the Oscar the year before and all of these things that go into why movies win Oscars, which is why I'm super interested in it. And sorry, Argo beat Zero Dark Thirty to win Best Picture. Let me be clear. I know some shit. But, but those those narratives are about the industry. They're not necessarily about what was happening in America at that time and pushing them into the conversation or, well, if you're not, looking or for what movies, was happening with, with movies, filmmaking and, and drama. If you're looking for movies to reflect what's happening in the world, that's almost never going to happen because the lag time is so significant. It took until 2009 for a movie about the Iraq war to win Best Picture with The Hurt Locker because that's about how long it takes to A, get anyone brave enough to make a movie about the war and B, get it through the system. And The Hurt Locker especially took forever getting made. So, I mean, getting something that's super zeitgeisty in that specific way, I mean, I mean, you could look at 12 Years a Slave, which in some way is, was a little bit ahead of its time in terms of there being more conversation about race in America. I mean, that is a really oblique way about getting away, getting at modern race issues. But it won, you know, a couple, like maybe a year before Black Lives Matter really took off. I remember people calling Slumdog Millionaire the Obama Best Picture winner, which is insane. But it was, you know, it opened in the fall of 2008. It was an underdog story. It was about, Why did they you know, call it the Obama Because winner. it was the underdog. It was kind of coming out of oh. nowhere. It was like, you know, it defeated the Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which was like the big glossy uh, industry pick. So, right. It was know, an indie It was an indie film. I, I yeah, like it was a movie. It almost, went, it almost went straight to DVD until it premiered at Telluride and did really well. Um, so yeah, I mean, people try to assign all these narratives to things, but I think it's a mistake to try to make the Oscars about anything but Hollywood itself. But they have to be, right? I mean, that's... Do they? Or, or I think they have to be because there's still films from the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s that we talk about today, you know, like Ben-Hur, The Apartment, West Side Story, Lords of Arabia. These are movies that aren't just champions of, of the, the, the specific year uh, in the industry. There are movies that have stood the test of time and won... But what, like, what do you learn about the '60s from Lawrence of Arabia? Well, you, um, well, that is probably uh, there are probably books on that topic, <laughs> or, or about the apartment. Yeah. Or I'm, I'm looking. Okay, so looking at the so Mark Harris's book, uh, "Pictures at a Revolution," is about 
1967 Best Picture Contest and about how all of these sure. films reflected various things in culture and in Hollywood and in, you know, America at large. I mean, you've got The Graduate, which was a real cultural phenomenon, and In the Heat of the Night, which was about race relations, as it turns out, um, and, but, and in how fucking Dr. Doolittle got in there anyway. So you have some times when things are going to reflect the zeitgeist and, you know, the idea of a cultural ch- culture change. But the year after that, Oliver won, like a big, glossy, kind of dumb musical. So, well, I'm, not- so I'm not arguing that these movies have to be zeitgeisty. They can just be great films. Or pretty right? mediocre films. I guess, I, I mean, I think Oliver is a pretty good movie. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I mean, I was thinking of, I keep thinking about the artist, honestly, as like the really weird Okay, so now, yeah, you're talking about the contemporary films that we're contending with. Will they, will these films stand the test of time? And you come, I mean, the artist is kind of, at this point, it's just a a, a beaten dog. People love just beating that thing up. Uh, Why? Why? I mean, how did the artist win? It's a good movie, right? That's fine. It's Uh, what's, (laughs) yeah, that's pleasant. The thing to me about the artist is that, like, Oscar movies have narratives. Like, the reason that, movies win Oscars is not just because they're good but because there's a story that people feel good voting for and the artists like removed from that context like you can't like what is the story behind the artist how did that get in there and you know you can go back and look at why it wasn't that long ago but it's up against something like Moneyball and Warhorse and even The Help which like really felt more relevant to the world and to the industry at the time than the artist this movie made by a bunch of French people who thus far haven't had much impact on the industry at all since then that's why it sticks well, so out so much. Is because you can't figure out that narrative. But it's not about politics. It's just about the industry. To me, I think. Well, then why? So what? What? How would you compare movies from the early days of the Oscars? I mean, I guess I'm even referring to 1967 or Pictures of the Revolution. Those, those movies. Why did they seem to have this aura that they're classics? They stood the test of time. And movies like, I mean, everyone rags on Crash. Everyone rags on the artist. I even think something like The Departed, which won in 2006, is not a movie I didn't really like it in the first place. But I, I don't know if people who really love it would talk about it until the end of time. Looking back in 50 years, what are these movies that are going to prevail and why? I mean, are there any that have come out recently that, that stand up to it and how are they different? Dave, I want to know what you think about any recent Best Picture winners that are worth a damn. Yeah, which ones will you uh. think about, Dave? Which ones will I think about recently? Um, Does anything glow? I mean, Lord of the uh, Rings, probably. And Lord of the Rings, I mean, I'll, I'll obviously be rewatching those. The weird thing is, the Oscars were always curation for me. Uh, it's like even when I was a kid, I remember like getting interested in what Silence of the Lambs was because they kept playing the theme music because it kept winning Oscars. So Mm -hmm. I remember like have vague memories of the broadcast where it's like that would be my introduction to like what everybody considered good in the populace. And so it was that way until about, I remember Shakespeare in Love, um, you know, upsetting Saving Private Ryan. I remember seeing Saving Private Ryan with my dad, and so like my household was involved in that like kerfuffle. And like ever since then, um, it's been—I've always had a winner that I would rather have won that year. And so when it does win, it's like I'm never gonna not remember Gladiator with Traffic or A Beautiful Mind with like I don't know in the bedroom or uh, Moulin Rouge. 
or like stuff like that. Every winner has is paired with a loser for my prime. So I'm not. I mean, I think that's something that I have to like offer anybody who wants to listen to me going forward. But like otherwise, if you're just looking for, like I I don't know. Like you you could pick any of the nominees for like best picture like in like the late 30s or whatever, and probably happen across the whole Hollywood narrative that is like rewarding or like and that is weird completely like, lost 1990- to us now like we can't really figure out like to know why the great Ziegfeld beat Mr. Deeds go to town goes to town and a tale of two cities is kind of hard to know now right but it's also a cool thing to like figure out yeah, so I guess oh, that's, yeah, that's helpful and, in the sense that yeah and it might not mean yeah, anything like people, to culture as a whole but there's a whole story in there that's really fascinating to know yeah, and so it's like the if you look at 1999, I'm never gonna remember 1999 as like the American Beauty year, but like there are so many other movies in 1999 that were so important to me as a person enjoying film at that time that that makes me sort of discount the idea that any of these are really important. But I guess they're like perfect waypoints for your own film curation. And in that sense, like you know, having more nominees now in these latter years is. It's probably like I backed into the best argument for that because then you get to have a much greater sampling of what film sort of looked like. Uh, so yeah, I guess I guess to put a point on it, I would say who who won isn't as important as the field of nominees for each year, and I think that hasn't changed, even though the film landscape has changed. Patches, is there anything for you that you feel like looking back, either in recent history or overall history, where you're like, okay, yes, the Best Picture winner said something about not just the movie movie industry at the time, but the world at the time, or the country, let's go smaller. Well, I mean, we were talking about No Country for Old Men before, that you even thought maybe we wouldn't really be salivating over that movie in, in 20. Not that it's not years. a good movie, but that it's not definitive of 2007 in the way that it felt like it was at the time. I don't know. Those are dark times, man. Even even they were. seven, eight years ago, I guess. Um, does any movie stand out? I mean, I, I really do think the end of there was there was some sort of weird transition around English Patient, where maybe it was the size of movies. Have movies become more specific? Did they, you know, Braveheart and and Forrest Gump, Schindler's List, Unforgiven? These feels like big movies that are still kind of character driven um, and comparative to something like Lawrence Arabia or Casablanca, which just has the whole world behind it, even if it's an intimate story. Is that why we still talk about them? And they don't, movies, even big ones, don't have the same kind of scope. Like, I mean, Gladiator's a movie we'll probably be watching. People will be watching that in college dorm rooms forever. The, 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 the files will be passed down from father to son. I was going to say the Blu-rays, <laughs> but really, let's be honest, the ripped downloaded files will be passed on from father to son of Gladiator. Um, but yeah, it just doesn't... That That is pul- almost pulpy. Uh, Lord of the Rings is kind of pulpy. And these more... But pulpy Best Picture winners are the ones that usually do get handed down. I mean, The Wizard of Oz being... I mean, West, West Side Story in some ways being like a big, large-scale musical. Gone with the yeah, Wind. There's something that just feels narrow about the artist. God well, the artist Wizard feels like a big Wizard of Oz didn't win Best Picture. It lost Gone with the Wind. I'm so sorry. I'm really getting <laughs> get these facts wrong. Okay, continue. Um... But, you know, The King's Speech, totally acceptable, very nice movie. I had a lovely time watching it. Argo, it's okay. Um, But maybe it's because they feel they have to play to the masses, but they also have to feel more specific because there were so movies 
being made. Um, everything just feels a bit more maudlin to make it four quadrant, to make it play in today's business landscape. But they also have to be, there's so many types of movies that you can't emulate. You have to have very specific stories. You can't have broad emotions that feel classic already. I don't know. Is that a weird philosophy? But something about No Country for Old Men feels that way. It feels very specific uh the characterizations of of the villains of the perf- you know of uh anton sugar uh is that how you pronounce it javier bardem's character yeah. in that movie or tommy lee jones monologues the writing you know it all seems to stars align speak to really big themes about american darkness american violence um evil whatever evil is that movie seems to encapsulate on a broad scale and a very tiny scale and not a lot well, of movies if you, do that. If, I feel like you could contort everything from that year if you wanted to really like make it about that year. Like Atonement is about George Bush and one lie sort of killing everybody that he loves. And, you know, Juno's about rising pregnancy because absence only. Michael Clayton's about how politics is a whole bunch of goddamn white people trying to screw each other over, as is There Will Be Blood. So it's like you yeah, could Michael Clayton do that really, if you want. Michael Clayton was really ahead of its time. If it had come out in 2008... Like just imagine, I love that movie. Loved it. Oh yeah, it's but a great then, movie. But then, oh, yeah, that's like peak till till the when point. movies hone into something really granular in the zeitgeist, then they probably get more lost uh, as time passes than something like Casablanca again, or The Apartment, which is just kind of raw emotion stuffed inside this tiny narrative. Um, Although The Best Years of Our Lives is a really specific movie about soldiers returning home from World War II that is still really, really great. And one best picture because it was so timely when it came out. I, I just feel like we're at a time, you know, that The Departed is Scorsese's Oscar winner. I just won't think about that film ever again. Um, or Crash, the reason we'll think about it is, a, is as a disaster uh, of the Oscar process. Or, you know, Million Dollar Baby, threw it to Clint, you know, give Clint one. We're kind of in an era where it's all about handouts, it's all about legacies. Um, and maybe The Hurt Locker doesn't fit that bill but that was again, the, as you were saying, years a slave definitely doesn't fit that bill. That's true. I mean, the, I, but I do think movies today are stuck more in that Oscar narrative. You you acknowledged this earlier. Yes, movies from the turn of the century had as much to do. Actually, movies from the 1930s probably had more to do with the industry comparatively to now than the movies of the 50s and 60s. For sure, yeah. Uh, which, the industry and, was a behemoth back then. Right, we were just in a different mode of of filmmaking in the 60s and 70s, um, where where directors had more freedom. Uh, But back in the studio, you know, locked into the studio days in the 1930s, these movies were industry-driven again. So maybe that's the problem. And you know what? If you go back and look at uh, the winners of the 1930s, yeah, we're not really talking about them a whole lot. Actually, Mutiny on the Bounty, which won in 1935, is a fantastic movie. Um, But... I was going to say, if there's, like... Not everyone's watching Cimarron from 1931. Fair enough. But it's, like, close to 1999 in terms of, like, awesome movies. I wish I was living through the late 30s in cinema. Why? Man. Why? Because of the exact things that you're talking about. It's, like, there was, like, this weird... uh, It's, like, the pre-war studio era was producing a lot of really interesting stuff, and then the war came in and kind of screwed everything up. Yeah, but during the war, you start getting film noir, you start getting really weird stuff when, like, nobody was around to to make the rules. Fair enough. Just saying. And the end of uh, studio filmmaking, sort of late late 30s, early 40s, 
really really interesting time. There's gonna be, I think. We'll have a great segment three someday about what era of movies we wish we could have been alive for, or if we Ooh, think yeah. now what or what was the best era to be a movie goer in America. I mean, it's a hard, it's a hard question to answer. I love the movies that we get today. Like, I'm happy to be in this decade and watching people experiment. You know, the advent of digital cinema. I mean, that's the reason the Hurt Locker could look fantastic and be on par with the big movies with studio funding. You know, the Hurt Locker and Avatar nominated in the same year. Jesus. Um, That tells you something. And the Hurt Locker deserves to win. The Hurt Locker, actually, I haven't watched the Hurt Locker again probably in six or seven years. Um, So maybe I I owe that another look and we'll we'll talk about that film forever. Uh, But then, you know, snap to last year, I think the the why boyhood losing felt so kind of depressing was that it felt iconic. It didn't matter if it was your favorite film of the year or not. It, you know, maybe Birdman is the better film in terms of the craft, in terms of the writing, in terms of the humor, in terms of the drama, whatever. But Boyhood felt like an achievement. I just wanted Boyhood to win the Oscar so we can put that one on the on the shelf, on history's shelf. Because Birdman is not a movie I'm going to watch again. But, like, what do you... Like, do you remember Gladiator? Or do you remember Aaron Brockovich and Traffic from 2000? I mean, I, I remember them all. Because yeah, it wasn't but, like, I feel like... I mean, I, I really firmly believe that a Best Picture loss does not diminish something's legacy in history. I, I think you can look at... I mean, there will be blood lost best picture to no country for old men and i think of those movies really on the same level as these two really titanic westerns that came out in the same year and it doesn't i mean i love no country for old men but i don't think that makes it more accessible to history than there will be blood yeah well i think you're right i mean my major complaint going into this segment was you know will we remember these movies and i guess the answer is yes one way or another we'll be forced to look back probably come they will be in montages in oscars for the rest of our lives we'll be seeing clips from birdman (laughs) forever oh really yeah yeah i guess that's probably true and say what you will about Birdman, but it is an idiosyncratic, very specific movie that is, you know, it's not trying the Forrest Gump route to winning Best Picture. So, you know, we have gotten away from that in some ways. And it's but, been, having a really big cloud, crowd pleaser win Best Picture doesn't work every year. But maybe that's maybe why it feels year. less, you know, that that's why it doesn't seem to have the legs. Like, maybe we won't be, t- we'll always talk about Forrest Gump because it was so big and it was so weird uh, and it had so much... Hollywood star power, you know, I almost want the the Oscars to be about those type of movies just because, I don't know, they're lavish, they're, I, I, what, what are, I, am I crazy here? I don't well, know. then get ready You're for the, the Danish girl. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, they just feel so tiny and small, and I want Oscar movies to be big. Uh, not that we shouldn't make tiny, small movies. I just think I'd, I'd want, pill, I want excess in my hmm. Oscar movies, I suppose. Is what I'm really so saying. Avengers Age of Ultron <laughs> has, your, has your best picture nomination already. I, well, no, I want the like schmaltzy prestige version of the Avengers Age of Ultron. Like Danish Girl, you know, already getting buzzed for Eddie Redmayne, whatever. Um, that that just feels really tiny. What you want is for Star Wars to win best picture. I don't even. I maybe I do. I don't know. Are you aware that there is a Star Wars movie coming out? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We won't be back later this week because three of us will be busy at the Toronto Film Festival, but we'll be checking in next week 
with a lot of festival news from Toronto, from Telluride. Maybe we'll find someone who went to Venice for what that's worth. Maybe they're still stuck on a gondola. Who knows? But uh, we'll be back next week. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches. I am the senior writer of Esquire.com. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And remember, all of our episodes go on fightinginthewarroom.com. You can leave comments. You can share them. You can, I don't know, hack the website and destroy us. Uh, probably, technically. Uh, but don't. Just go to fightinginthewarroom.com and enjoy it. Yes, if you're still listening and haven't started hacking the website, I would say don't do not do that. I'm Dave Gonzalez, but my first name is DA70. It's also where you can find me on Twitter. I write at latinohyperinterview.com, geek.com, and forbes.com. And you can also find all of us and our episodes and another place to comment at fightinginthewarroom.com. Or wait, facebook.com slash fightinginthewarroom. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Twitter is also a great place to find all of us, maybe even tweeting from Toronto at F-I-T-W-R. It's also where you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of the perfect guy, what romantic leading man always seemed a little creepy to you? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. I cut it off in the summer when it's blazing. I cut you off if you're faking, you hating. I know they can't take all this money I'm making, but call me Betty Clock, I know, cause I'm caking. Booty shaking from the left to the right, bigger belt too tight, so my back is aching. I Shaking for I bring a break, yeah. Monday, a friend of mine.